Currently in Kashmir, people are living in a state of fear and unrest. The government of India has repealed Article 370 and sent troops into the country. Additionally, many have been arrested under the Public Safety Act. Both India and Pakistan have nuclear weapons, and there's a growing fear that Kashmir could bear the brunt of any hostility. This is important because there are people in Kashmir who are currently living under fear, their youth being arrested, and there are major implications for growing nationalist tensions and the implications that this has for international law in general. I'm your host. This is Declarations. I also have with me in the studio today Muna, who's going to help lead the discussion today. talk about Kashmir. On July 27, 2019, 100 additional groups of security forces were mobilized into the state. On August 1st this year, 25,000 additional security personnel entered into Jammu and Kashmir. And on August 5th, Article 370 of the Indian Constitution that granted special status to the state of Jammu and Kashmir was removed. Caught between a crossfire, let's talk about Kashmir. I think it's important to set the history we're going to tell you in the immediate context. So we're offering a history of the present, really. So today, October the 31st, is a really important day in the history of German Kashmir. It's the day that German Kashmir changes from being a state with special uh, constitutionally guaranteed status in India. Uh, that provided it with some notional autonomy to a union territory. Wasim Yakub is a British Kashmiri academic who lectures on the history of political thought at Queen Mary University of London. He's also a member of the Kashmir Solidarity Movement. So that is to say, uh, a political body subject to direct control by the Indian central state. So Kashmir, as we're going to say, in a moment has a long history of oppression and exploitation by the central government, but this is a new stage uh, that might mean an acceleration of processes of dispossession and human rights violations um, in Kashmir. So that's the present context we need the history to tell so us So just to add to that, uh, we have been bifurcated right now into two different entities. Like there are two union territories that have been carved out of uh, the erstwhile state. Mirza Saeed Beg is a London-based Kashmiri lawyer who has worked within academic and activist spaces on various legal and political issues around Kashmir for several years. He has delivered lectures, workshops, seminars, and public events on Kashmir at various institutions in India and in the UK, including at SOAS, the University of Westminster, and the University of Oxford. Uh, to give you a little history, we, uh, the erstwhile boundaries of our state right now are under the control of Pakistan, India, and China. Um, and we can start off just in 30 seconds to give your listeners a brief background to a place to contextualize where we are. Uh, in 1846, 
what you see as the state of Jammu and Kashmir today. That's the erstwhile princely state was formed and sold by the British under the Treaty of Amritsar. Not just the land of Kashmir, even the people of Kashmir were sold. Uh, so we were. It was a slave deed basically, and the Maharaja would often take people for something known as begaire, which is bonded labor, and uh, this was a very common practice. In fact. and as as a similar uh, structure of begaire continues today as well where the indian army takes people for bonded labor forces them to work and they often be, they're not paid for this work they often get tortured and beaten and it's done out of fear so it, this structure that we see today is based on a colonial structure which derives its authority from that treaty of amritsar which was signed which where the british sold kashmir to the maharaja and that maharaja entered into an instrument of accession in 1947 by which he gave authority to india basically kashmir just gave sovereign its sovereignty on three aspects to india which is defense communications and foreign affairs for every other aspect of legislation we retained our sovereignty now the instrument of accession itself is a controversial document um, and in kashmir there is a a line of thought which where people believe that it might never have even been signed or that it was signed if it, at all it was signed then it was signed under duress because the maharaja did not want to accede to either pakistan or india he had chosen to remain independent but he did accede if we say if we accept the legality of the instrument then he did accede to india uh after that all you see in kashmir is a struggle of self determination and a delegitimization of all our leaders so uh, in 30 seconds i just want to tell you the the flash points of our political history in 1953 our prime minister was arrested uh, the first prime minister by the indian government and in 1964 the second prime minister was also arrested and in both cases they were advocating a position which the government of india did not like in 1965 india abolished our posts of prime minister and president who were known as the sadr riyasat and the wazir azam in the local dialect and in 1965 so in 1970 india banned our leaders from entering kashmir so you see a continuous process of domination of our political movement in 1976 india destabilized our government and there's a coup they uh, engineered they pulled out support from the government they did that in, again in 1984 and in 1996 when kashmir's legislative assembly passed a resolution for autonomy they just rejected that so at every stage there's no parallel to uh any state in india where you would see such interference such dominance and as of now i'm only talking about the political interference i've not even begun talking about the military interference the human rights violations the ghastly control invisible and visible ways of control that have been exercised upon us to delegitimize us to dehumanize us to completely destabilize us to depoliticize us so throughout our relationship with india instead of earning our trust India has chosen to maintain control through these profane policies by encouraging corruption by naked coercion and by a lobotomization of the Indian people. So I think Mez has given as much of the history as you probably need but I want to I want to pull out some of the sort of overarching sort of principles of the Kashmiri political movement that emerged from this history. So one thing that really needs to be hammered home is that um Kashmir was a political community before partition, right? So this is not a dispute that is simply between Pakistan and India, not a bilateral dispute. the kashmiri people are a third party or the central party really so prior to 1947 there was a popular anti-monarchical anti-aristocratic movement kashmir um 
that in the 40s blossomed into a movement for a constitutional monarchy based on the princely state that existed there. So it was a democratic and democratizing movement. And what happens in 1947 is that the logic, the intercommunal violent logic of partition of this post-imperial catastrophe is imported into a state, Jammu and Kashmir, that previously had not had much intercommunal strife. So one, one specific example of this is that in Jammu, the area that is now a Hindu majority zone in Jammu and Kashmir, um, there was a large-scale massacre by the troops of the Maharaja, the monarch, and paramilitaries belonging to the RSS, the organisation that the BJP, the current ruling party, springs from. Conservative estimates suggest that at least 25,000 Muslims were killed in that period. Um, there are estimates that range up to several hundred thousand. So what this brought was demographic change along communal lines in part of the state of Jammu and Kashmir. So what you then have is a movement, as Miz described, for self-determination to retain parts of the state's autonomy that goes on for decades. So there is a basic conflict between Kashmir aspirations to set up their own government and determine their political future and India's colonial ambitions in Kashmir. The last thing I'd say is this is, I understand, a podcast about human rights. So one way in which this this situation in Kashmir has been framed is, is one of repeated human rights abuses. I think what we'd like to say is the only thing that would stop these human rights abuses reoccurring is self-determination. So to talk about human rights without self-determination is to miss most of the story here. Yeah, and, I think, and that's very yeah. important because the human rights abuses are not taking place in a vacuum. They're taking place because people are demanding self-determination. Mm. So even if the human rights abuses would stop, people would still demand uh, self-determination. So that, that's the, the essential uh, discussion, the essential central point for all our movement till now. It's the reason why all our leaders have been uh, either uh, removed or delegitimized. So it's all, it all comes down to it. to self-determination is a foundational legal aspect of international law. It's embedded in the UN Charter um, and its role in customary international law can be seen in both state practice and important treaties. To elaborate, I think I'm going to give you the UN definition of self-determination. So it says, by virtue of the principle of equal rights and self-determination of peoples enshrined in the Charter of the United Nations, all peoples have the right freely to determine without external interference their political status and to pursue their economic, social, and cultural development. And every state has the duty to respect this right in accordance with the provisions of the Charter. But yes, it, it is a colonial land grab that's taking place. It's, a, it's an attack on controlling our natural resources. It's an attack on, uh, you know, without the facade of local leadership. What is happening going to happen today? Because until now, at least there was the facade of local leadership. But what's going to happen today will give India direct access to our natural resources. In fact, uh, in the last week itself, 125 projects have been cleared by the government of India in just three meetings to access our forest land in which they are going to take over 270 hectares of our forests. And you need to understand the topography, the, the, the land in Kashmir. There isn't a lot of ha land available for habitation or cultivation because we're a mountainous region. Of our erstwhile state, 
India controls only 50% and of that 50% only 30% is available for habitation or cultivation so whatever whatever developmental projects quote unquote India wants to undertake can only happen through uh, deforestation so and they're doing that right now and you have to understand that we are we have living glaciers in Kashmir it's a mountainous zone so we live in a very fragile ecological zone and any kind of deforestation or environmental damage can cause irreversible damage to us and we have seen how india has turned itself because of unplanned development into one of the most polluted countries in the world right now so we do fear um, one an environmental an envir- environmental attack on us and also a demographic change which has been vocalized by uh, leaders in india So this is a really important point you're making about self-determination and from my understanding of just following things on mainstream media the couple of times that Kashmir has really come to front pages or been highlighted in the past little while that's not exactly how it's been framed and the thing that gets highlighted the most has been in relation to article 370 um so how do those things fit together how does this fit within the colonial history and how do those framings work off of each other well uh, often it's framed as kashmiris are often passed off as approvers of anti minority violence um and these are these are terms that are just passed off to uh, invisibilize us and specifically with respect to article 370 what india doesn't want to acknowledge anymore is the fact that it's it's a representative of an international treaty it's a remnant because when we signed the instrument of accession accepting the legality of it it was between two sovereign states the maharaja of kashmir and a representative from india the mountbatten who was the governor general of india so it's an international treaty and article 370 captures the understanding of that international treaty so article 370 is Um, is embedded within the Indian Constitution and essentially grants Kashmir special status and the ability to draft its own constitution. Sans um, dealing with things like external affairs, defense, and communication, which the Indian central government is responsible for. Article 35A that draws from the from Article 370, it gives special provisions to permanent residents of the Jammu and Kashmir state. So essentially, um, those residents have special access to things like um, land ownership, scholarships, and government aid. Um, and under Article 370. the reason it, it's so important is because it gave us a separate system of laws through which we could engineer reforms for our people which we could not have otherwise done under the indian constitution for example it's only because of article 370 that we could engineer land reforms uh, where we redistributed most of the land in the state which is a revolution that is unlike anything the subcontinent india pakistan bangladesh any nation in the subcontinent has ever seen to give you an example on how far reaching this was Uh, most states in india have populations of dalits who are usually uh, they suffer from political exclusion they suffer, suffer from economic depri- deprivation and in most states about 80% of dalits are landless even in progressive states like kerala tamil nadu 75 80% of dalits are landless in kashmir 20% dalits are landless which is the lowest in comparison with any indian state i would say that even 20% is not something to boast about but it gives you an exa- it, it's it's an insight into how far reaching our land reforms were that even the most impoverished of our community 
communities, the most economically deprived in our communities, the most ostracized also uh, were uplifted. And this is one of the reasons why today, despite 72 years of political turmoil, you still see only 10% of Kashmir's population living in poverty. Whereas in, in India, some of the most economically advanced states like Maharashtra or Gujarat, they have 17, 18, 20% of their population below the party line. Uttar Pradesh has about 30% of its population living below the party line. So, And these are states where there's no terrorism, so-called terrorism. There's no Pakistan involvement. There are no United Nations resolutions to contend with. These are states that are fully integrated in India. So despite all of these things, we have been far more progressive on human development indicators. On every single indicator, we outperform most states in India on life expectancy, on infant mortality, uh, immunization, on almost every parameter. Uh, and this is specifically because we have had our own system of governance uh, by which we have ruled and engineered solutions for our people because you cannot have a copy-paste of solutions that are present elsewhere. So this is one of the reasons why 370 is so important. But the reason it's causing such a flare-up, an emotional flare-up right now, is because 370 had captured uh, land rights for Kashmir that a non-Kashmiri would not be allowed to buy land in Kashmir then. And also under 35A. So once these, these two provisions are gone, non-Kashmiris, that is Indians, can now move into Kashmir and engineer a demographic change. And like I said, there's very little habitable land over there. So one, this is going to skyrocket land prices. There'll be multinational corporations that'll come in. And that's where, or to coming to your question on how this is linked to colonization. You see, uh, India, there, there's a kind of pervasive exploitation that takes place in India, which has elements of colonialism, where multinational corporations are given a free hand to capture land and resources. And all of this is done by holding local populations under the bayonet of national integration or national interest. And in Kashmir, national interest is nothing but a toxic brew of majoritarian agenda of uh, business interests and risky political adventurism. He's done this too, for prosperity of Kashmir. This is supposed to be for the development. These 900,000 troops, what are they going to do? When, the demo, when they come out, there'll be a bloodbath. August, armed forces conduct night raids on homes and are pulling young men and boys straight from their beds into military custody. My cousin was taken in a midnight raid such as that. He's not a politician, he's not a dissident, he's not a freedom fighter, he's not even a kid in a street throwing stones, he's just a businessman. I can only man. share what, you know, what I've heard from, you know, both from, from government officials and also from, from the kind of reports that you're hearing, which is uh, both a, a lack of, of internet and then on the cell phone. And so I think one of the reasons that the role and agency of the Kashmiri people has been sort of obscured or invisibilized is that Article 370 and the autonomy um, it gave to the state of Jammu and Kashmir has been seen as a temporary sort of provision that or has been presented by the BJP and the central government as a temporary provision that was always supposed to disappear and be replaced by Kashmir's full integration into the Indian nation uh, and the Indian constitutional order. Um I think what this also means is that Kashmir has essentially been seen as a sort of um, 
an object that's struggled over by two major regional powers, right? It's an internal matter. Um, what that misses is that Kashmir was a pre-existing political community, has had aspirations for its self-determination for decades and decades. Um, so I think in terms of what the international community should be doing, well, what we're seeing right now is an internationalization of the Kashmir issue that wasn't present a few decades ago. This is partly because the United States regarded Pakistan as a major regional ally. Now, with the war on terror and with the successive policies of the Obama and Trump regimes, that relationship is less, slightly less close. So there is a space opening for the Kashmir people to get a voice uh, that wasn't there during the Cold War. Um, and I think that simply has to continue because at the moment, lots of the language about how international law right, might relate to Kashmir relates to human rights violations, right? Or violations of the Geneva Conventions, the coll collective punishment of civilians, preemptive arrests and detentions. What needs to happen, I think, is that the Kashmir people need to be recognised as an actor. There's one thing, uh, additionally, I'd say, the extreme nationalism of the Indian government at the moment is creating, um, is fragmenting, the Indian constitutional order. So a government in exile was declared earlier this week by Manipur, um, another state in India. That government in exile was declared in the UK. The point is, the project of breaking down a federal constitutional order where states and peoples and cultures have autonomy is being threatened by the BJP. And that is internationalising this issue and creating move or giving a boost to movements in these states and i think international law and the international community needs to recognize that process but the point i want to make here is that kashmir has been involved in this process of trying to assert itself internationally for many decades so it's about time that the international community recognize that and just to add to that uh, because you're asking why you as external actors here only of kashmir through india or pakistan it's because kashmir on the international stage has never vocalized itself through an agency of Kashmir. It's always through either of these two states. Um, and economically speaking also, the presence of these two states on our borders has crushed our economy. Because our erstwhile relations before these two states came into existence were with Central Asia. Our trade routes were with Central Asia. And most of our trade would take place through present-day Pakistan, through rivers, the Jhelum, Chinab, Ravi, through these rivers. And the, in the 1950s, because of the emergence of a dispute with China, uh, China closed down the borders of Turkestan, Turkestan and uh, which is towards the north of Kashmir. So that, that trade route collapsed. And with the emergence of uh, a dispute with Pakistan, the remaining trade routes that we had also collapsed. So now we are completely dependent for our trade on India. And from the international side, uh, we have no agency right now. So in, in the UN or in any international body, in any uh, intergovernmental relationship, any place where you can negotiate on Kashmir, there is no agency of Kashmir. So you won't hear directly of Kashmiris, uh, but you will hear through the uh, discourse that is created by these states. So it becomes, in fact, even in the UN, the dispute on Kashmir is called the India-Pakistan question, mm. not the Kashmir question. Mm. So this is why you hear it like that. But also, it needs to be said that there is a sentiment in Kashmir. See, there's, there isn't a uniformity of uh, political opinion. And that's fine, because we are a people. We cannot be expected to have a uniform identity or uniform uh, opinion. There is a section of population that wants to become part of Pakistan. There's also a section of the population, which I would say is the, the smallest section of the population that wants to become a part of India. And there is a section of the population that wants to, wants to remain independent. And this opinion is shared in all sides of Kashmir, whether it's controlled by India or controlled by Pakistan. However, there is 
hardly any movement in the side that's controlled by Pakistan that wants to join India. Mm-hmm. So there are Kashmiris living in Indian-controlled Kashmir who want to join Pakistan. But there are no Kashmiris in Pakistan-controlled Kashmir who want to join India. Mm-hmm. So when India lays claim to that side of Kashmir, you have to ask or by what authority because there's no one there who wants to join India. One thing we haven't talked about is that in 1948 there was a UN resolution that responded to the conflict in Kashmir that asserted that Kashmiris should have the right to determine their political future through a plebiscite where they can decide whether to join India or Pakistan. So at the same time as offering way forward for the conflict, what that did was erase Kashmiri, the agency of the Kashmiri people, and basically take off the list a third option that many Kashmiris have historically wanted, an independent state. So I think the way the international community needs to respond now is to recognise, first of all, the aspirations of the Kashmiri people, their agency, and have a third option. Uh, There should be a right to self-determination that is enacted through a plebiscite, but it needs to move out of that UN framework that always disregarded the Kashmiri people and their agency. Plebiscite is essentially a direct popular vote, um, ensuring that everyone um, agrees to an important law, such as a constitutional law. So when we're talking about Kashmiri voices being actively erased or kept out of the international discussion, it strikes me that things like the communication blackout and the Public Safety Act, the recent things that we've been hearing about, seem somewhat directly related to it in the sense of there being a current active effort to make sure that there isn't a sense of agency and voices aren't being heard. So maybe if you could contextualize for us or kind of give a timeline of the recent events that have been happening and what's going on right now. Well, with regard to the communication blackout, you have to understand why it's being uh, imposed on us. It's basically so that you are dependent on the narrative of the state because the only voice you'll hear from Kashmir right now, there's no media, there is no, there are no newspapers, I can't call my family, talk to them, ask them what's happening. So the only narrative of reality is the state's version of uh, what's happening. Um, so the state wants to make you dependent on its version of events. You can't question it, you can't, you can't counter it. In fact, uh, in the Supreme Court of India also right now, no one knows under what law this communication ban has been imposed on us. Today is the 87th day of the communication blockade. And in between, they'd opened up some phone connections. The internet has been completely blocked all for all these 87 days. Um, and no, you don't know what's happening over there. And even the Supreme Court of India has failed to ask the government under what law you have blocked communication. And they have not even sought for answers. And as a Western audience who may have never experienced what a communication blackout is like, you have to understand that this is not just a blackout in terms of the human sense of communication that I can't call my family. The entirety of the internet has been shut down, which means that hospitals that have their patient databases online cannot access them. Uh, medics, medics who require the internet to order their medicines cannot do that. Uh, anything, any business activity, anything that is connected to the internet is not uh, taking place right now. So the economic loss, the loss because of healthcare, the loss just because of general communication, anything that is dependent on the internet has been shut down. And one would ask why the government of India is even doing this. And it's primarily so that no information, no videos will come out.
For the first 25 days, the only way information came out was when someone would travel from Kashmir, from within Kashmir, with voice recordings on his phone or a pen drive, come to Delhi or somewhere where he could access the internet, and then send them to people whose family members had sent messages recorded. So someone would walk around, and you know, even right now, it's not just a communication blackout. There was a, the, the obscene amount of militarization in the run up to this. So. Even under normal circumstances, if I can term them as normal, normal by Kashmir's sense, Kashmir is the world's most densely militarized zone. And in the run-up to August 5, when this was done, there were reports, Indian media reported that as many as maybe 200,000 more troops had been sent into Kashmir, which took the total number of troops to around 800,000. So we're talking about nearly a million troops over there. For 8 million people, I think it's important to say. Yeah. Sorry, can you say those numbers one more time? Around 800,000 troops. So under normal circumstances, it's 500. People. Yeah, under normal circumstances, around 500 to 600,000 troops are there. And the reason there's a large discrepancy is because the government wouldn't release the exact numbers. Uh, but... In the run-up to this uh, this act, first they sent 20,000, then they said it's 30,000, then they said it's 45,000, and then uh, the Quint, which is a popular Indian mainstream uh, newspaper, said that as many as 200,000 extra troops had been sent in. One million military soldiers for a population of eight million people. And this created an obscene presence on the streets where every village, every alley, every, every lane has been barricaded and people could not even come out to protest because there are so many barricades, barbed wires that have been placed in every locality. I was told when finally I could communicate with someone that even if you would see a building maybe a few hundred meters ahead of you, you can't go straight and walk to it because they have created so many barricades. They've got buses and put them in the middle of the roads just to prevent people from coming out because they know that the people of Kashmir do not want this. We do not consent to it. And this is just a, another act in the long line of uh, delegitimization of our political will where they've taken a decision on our behalf without consulting us. We don't. There's no one in Kashmir who accepts this decision, not even the mainstream political parties that are pro-India. Even they don't accept it. So right now, three ex-chief ministers of Kashmir who have been pro-India are arrested. One of them has been arrested in the PSA, which you just mentioned. The PSA is the Public Safety Act, which, if I can add to this, it was a law which was brought out in 1978 for timber smuggling. It was not meant for what it's being used right now, but now it's just turned into a law which is used to keep people out of circulation. And once a PSA order is imposed on you, you don't even have recourse to courts. A habeas corpus petition cannot work for you because you're under administrative detention. Does that mean people are detained or on house arrest or house people's? They're detained. Okay. Uh, so there's a different there's a different provision which is used for house arrest, mm -hmm. and and PSA is a separate law itself. The amnesty has called the PSA a lawless law because I'll give, I can give you the example of a man named Masarat Alam, who spent over 23 years under PSA right now. Uh, it's called a revolving door uh, detention, where you get out of the detention and then the authorities impose a new detention on you without giving you reasons, without giving you legal recourse. So it just keeps happening again and again, and these laws are meant to break the people's will. The Public Safety Act essentially grants the Indian government the ability to detain any individual without the need for a trial for a period of up to two years. And already there is a structure of laws over there which are oppressive, such as the AFSPA, which gives legal immunity to actions of the armed forces. So you cannot try them in court. Since 2008 alone, 108 inquiries have been ordered into various human rights violations that have taken place, just since 2008. 
of these 108 inquiries, not a single one has resulted in a prosecution, let alone a conviction. I'm talking about prosecution. Not a single prosecution has taken place. There's hardly anyone from the Indian Armed Forces, there's no one who's serving a jail sentence despite the ghastly number of violence, that the, uh, the ghastly human rights violations that have taken place. The Gavakadal massacre, the Hawal massacre, the Kunan Pushpura mass rapes, the mass graves in Kashmir, half widows, the Kasso operations, everything that we've endured till now, there's hardly any accountability for it. So that's the structure we're living in. And in that structure, when you impose a communications blackout, as which is as pervasive and which punishes everyone, irrespective of whether they've committed a crime or not, it's just it doesn't it doesn't reek of the it doesn't seem like the behavior uh, which a country would exhibit, which calls itself the world's largest democracy. This is not democratic behavior. So there were one hundred and eight inquiries into human rights abuses, but not one single trial or conviction. Could I briefly go back to the blackout? So I think what Ms. pointed out is that blackout uh, might be the wrong word because it suggests certain sort of channels of communication to the outside world and between people are, have gone, right? So that frames it as communication. But what this is, is actually an assault on the fabric of the Kashmiri economy and civil society. So Ms. mentioned hospitals, but also the same thing, for example, happened to the apple growing uh, economy, which is central to the Kashmir economy, the huge orchards, orchards in the south of Kashmir that in total employ maybe a million or so people. What happened when the blackout was imposed was that farmers could not ascertain the prices in the markets they sold apples to. They were unable, therefore, to sell their crop, which remained rotting in the orchards. The government then set up an agency to buy, uh, a cooperative to buy these apples. But farmers not only knew when they were being offered fair prices, but this agency rejected 80% of their produce. So this is essentially immiserating a large part of the economy. So the blackout, in a way, is part of a much wider set of technologies that are used to intensify the occupation in Kashmir. Second thing I want to say about the blackout is for international solidarity in terms of what we should do outside, this puts a huge onus on Kashmiris and their allies to give spaces for Kashmiris like this one, I suppose, to voice their aspirations because the blackout denies that right to Kashmiris back home. And the Indian state is sending its diplomats and its spokespeople across the world to make the case for what it's doing in Kashmir. I'll just give you one example. The vice president of the BJP, the ruling party, was invited to the House of Lords by the Henry Jackson Society, part based in Cambridge down the road from here, of course, uh, and supporters of the Iraq war and the idea for war on terror. And that's how all of this is being justified. A blackout to stop terrorism or violence. There's been a communications blackout. So just imagine parents not being able to get in touch with their kids. Families don't even know if they're okay. It's really, really terrifying. And I'm scared because I think that things are only going to get worse. It is paralyzed right now. There is no mobile service. You cannot call your friends. You cannot call your family. There have been protests, but there's a comms blackout. Mr Modi did not refer to the lockdown and communications blackout imposed in Kashmir since his decision 11 days ago. Even shops and establishments right now, they don't open their businesses all day because, one, there is a restriction on movement and two because they don't want to pretend that we are okay and life can just go on which is what India is trying to project right now they have taken a delegation of MEPs 
uh, from various parties, right-wing parties uh, around from Europe, to show them that look, come, you can see everything's fine, people are happy, and this is being done while schools have exams going on. So they're going to take these um, MEPs to show them, yeah, children are coming to school, everything's fine over here, and create this false narrative of uh, of legitimacy. And I attended the session which Wasim was talking about in the parliament. Uh, where the spokesperson of the BJP had come, uh, Jay Panda, and I noticed something that the kind of narrative they're using for a Western audience to justify this, this the bifurcation of the state, acting against people's will, and the narrative that they use within India, that they, they give them two different planks. Within India, they sort of focus more on terrorism. Uh, they don't really talk much about LGBTQ rights over there. Uh, because homophobia is a very real thing in India and the BJP has postured itself as a party which doesn't necessarily favour decriminalisation. It's not opposed to it either. Uh, so for a Western audience, they say that we are doing this because LGBTQ rights were not applicable in Kashmir while they were decriminalised in India. And they, all of the arguments they've given are just not supported by law or facts. They, for example, on the LGBTQ, LGBTQ point, it's already been decriminalised in Kashmir in 2018. Uh, they also say that in Kashmir, uh, child marriage is not prevented, whereas India has an act. In Kashmir, we have an act of 1928, which is called the Infant Marriages Act, under which an infant is defined as any girl who's under the age of 18 or any boy who's under the age of 22, which prohibits, bans and punishes any marriage uh, in, these, uh, in the ages that are restricted. So they're just creating these narratives uh, to sell it to the Indian people. And I'm extremely shocked by how unchallenged these narratives are and how easily people are absorbing them. I was at a debate uh, organized by the BBC yesterday and um, there was someone who was a member of the UKIP who was speaking against me for in favor of the government of India. And he just accepted all of these points about LGBTQ, about property rights of women, about uh, right to education in Kashmir, all these points that the government has put forward in an unquestioning, unchallenged way, where is a simple Google, any of your listeners right now, they can do a simple Google search and find out that whether these laws exist in Kashmir or not. So I'm shocked at the level of acceptability, unchallenging acceptability that, the, that this discourse has uh, achieved. One way to frame this, I think, what's happening in Kashmir is both as a case of extreme far-right nationalism, a project the BJP holds to create a Hindu Rashtra, a sort of unified nation uh, that's Hindu in its national character, which of course excludes religious minorities. So it's hyper-nationalism, but it's also an imperial project. So it's both a hangover from imperial modes of rule by the central government bureaucracy that the British formed, uh, over a distant territory that doesn't want to be part of India. Kashmir has also occupied a sort of fantastical space in the Indian cultural imagination. So film, it's, it's a Himalayan region, very verdant, green. There are many films produced by Bollywood that have Kashmir, the territory of Kashmir, not the people really, as a backdrop for romantic stories. So it's a place of fancy and desire. It's a tourist destination when it's not under lockdown. Um, so it occupies an important sort of place in the Indian imagination. And this extends not just across the BJP and Hindu nationalists, but also across the liberal part of the Indian spectrum. So for liberals, for the Congress party, Kashmir is a place that India should be able to rule, even though it's a Muslim majority state, because then that burnishes the secular credentials they wish to see uh, revealed by India. For the BJP, uh, 
the fact that this Muslim majority state has this degree of autonomy and independence and political aspirations to be separate from India is a great insult. And they've made no bones about removing that autonomy. Since their inception, the BJP has said this is what they'll do. The other point to make about the BJP, which goes back then to the global far right, is that the BJP are a product of uh, crypto-fascist paramilitary organisation, the RSS, that consciously and explicitly drew their inspiration from uh, European fascist movements in the 40s. And their project was less about targeting the British in the independence struggle than about creating a homogenous nation and targeting into so-called internal enemies, Christians and Muslims. Now, this ideology, which killed Gandhi uh, effectively, has been incubating Indian politics like a toxin or a virus. And what we've seen in the past two decades is it emerge and seize power in a context where parties with similar hypernationalist ideologies, as you suggested, uh, rising around the world. But Modi's rise to power in a way predated what we might call the far-right resurgence of hypernationalist parties in Europe. What we might actually compare the BJP's project in India with is, realistically, I think it would be fair to say, with Israel's settler colonial project in the West Bank and with Gaza. Um, There are security, there are very close ties between the security agencies of both countries, the methods of occupation um, draw on the Israeli model. Uh, so there are various dimensions and dimensions this um, interaction between India and the global far right. And I think the MEPs visiting um, Kashmir, when no local politicians from India have been allowed to visit, I think is just the latest sign. And it's a very worrying sign. And I think it's helpfully clarifying for for Kashmiris and their allies, because it reveals who we're fighting against. And no international media also. So you're only allowing this select group of people who you can give a curated view of Kashmir. So if, if everything is fine in Kashmir, then there should be nothing, no problem with having international media come in. I'd like to talk a little bit about, you know, the sort of the diversity that exists within Kashmir. We hear a lot about different, um, you know, ethno-religious groups and individuals who are happy with, um, you know, Kashmir acceding to India and those who would like Kashmir to accede to Pakistan. I'd like to talk a little bit more about what the Kashmiri people want, uh, what these differences and sort of how these differences play into that discourse within Kashmir and with the movement itself. The question about religious differences in Kashmir will often hinge around the relations between Kashmiri Muslims and the Kashmiri Pandit community, Kashmiri Hindus. So for centuries, these two communities lived in relative harmony. Um, and what happened in the 1980s is the Kashmiri struggle for independence moved into an, a new stage. There are elections that were effectively rigged against separatist forces. And there were massive civilian protests right, against the rigging of elections. Those were met with massacres on a large scale of civilian protesters in early 1990. Now, at the same time, uh, well, 
shortly afterwards, many thousands of young people took up arms. Now, in this, in this volatile situation, Kashmiri pundits became associated with the cause of the Indian government. And the Indian government itself made very clear that it was going to initiate extremely harsh levels of repression. So the Kashmiri pundit community were pulled by both sides. Right? So their exodus was effectively encouraged by the Indian government. There were some horrific incidents, several atrocities, mass atrocities committed against Kashmiri pundits. It's a very dark part of our history, but it happened in a period when Kashmiri Muslims were being killed on an enormous scale, which is not to justify anything that happened, but violence against the Kashmiri pundit community needs to be put in the context of extraordinary levels of violence in the valley committed by all sides in a specific period. 219 Kashmiri pundits were killed in that year and the years after, several hundred thousand in all till now till till now several hundred thousand fled the valley many of them stayed in refugee camps for a while in in terrible conditions but that needs to be put in the context of a situ situation where between 70 and 100,000 Kashmiri Muslims were killed and a much greater proportion of the population were tortured so this was an extremely violent situation created by indian government repression over a period of decades. Now what's happening is that this story, this the, the real facts of the Kashmiri Pundit exodus are being knitted into a narrative that justifies enormous violence and repression against the Kashmiri population as revenge. This is not helpful for Kashmiri Pundits themselves. Many Kashmiris, if you speak to them today, would say they want nothing more than the return of people they lived with in harmony for many, many years. And there are Kashmiri Pundits who still live in Kashmir, several thousand at least. My parents' generation grew up in complete harmony with, with Kashmir pundits. They have Kashmir pundit friends. What we need is a settlement that allows pundits eventually to return not as agents of a settler colonial state, but as equal citizens of a free Kashmir that has the right to build a political system in harmony with its aspirations that have existed long before the horrific intercommunal violence that happened in 47 and then had its after growth in, eight, in 89 and 90. There is not just a religious difference within Kashmir, there are ethnic differences also. All of Kashmir is not one ethnicity. We have different ethnic groups in Kashmir. And what binds us together is a political identity. Kashmiris are not one, you see, because there's Kashmiris in Gilgit, Baltistan, in the portion that's controlled by Pakistan, in the portion that's controlled by India, Ladakh. Is, so all of these different parts of Kashmir, they're not one common ethnic identity. But we are all a political identity. And uh, there are, as Wasim was saying, there are many Pandit voices in the past as well as right now. For example, uh, Suvir Kaul, Sanjay Kaak, Nitasha Kaul. These are all Kashmiri Pandits who keep saying that do not weaponize us against this narrative, this uh, majoritarian project that is being committed in our name. We don't, this is not us. Because the Pandit exodus, the narrative of Kashmiri Hindus, it is a narrative tool which is used by India to delegitimize and undermine Kashmir's struggle for existence and self-determination. And it has now turned into a rallying cry for pro-state fanaticism, for glorification of state-sponsored aggression against us. Because anywhere in the world, if anyone comes to know of everything we have endured and what we are being subject to right now, the least we would expect is some empathy. But India has mobilized this narrative against us in a manner that we are stripped of even deserving that empathy. So 
there has been uh, violence against um, uh, Kashmiri Hindus in the 1990s. But you cannot use that one incident in our, that period in our struggle to color the entire movement. So I think what you're really saying is that it's important to not to not only be aware of the situation, but to display um, the sense of empathy regardless of your political affiliations or your ethno-religious affiliations or your beliefs. It's empathy. Empathy regardless of our political differences. India's house arrested and, and full-on arrested many of the politicians, the only politicians really, who were on India's side and wanted to keep Kashmir's place within the Indian, within the Indian states. They've destroyed their previous allies. And as Ms. said, are now seeking to create a new so, class. Jay Panda, who came to the parliament and the session that I attended, I was very amused that uh, he brought up the point that they had they conducted the BDO elections recently, which is like a block level uh, election. So and he, can you say what those elections are called again? BDO elections, BDO BDC, uh, block de- block. Uh, it's a village village level ele- election. So what he said is that you know no democracy has returned to Kashmir and look these elections have been conducted while not mention and I I questioned him on this saying that every political party boycotted the election and yet the BJP lost to independent candidates who have no money no funding no campaigns they lost 230 seats to these independent candidates uh, and I asked him that you know it's it it's amusing that you bring this up that uh, in an election where nobody participated it's like BJP uh, gave a red card to the goalkeeper took a free kick and still missed and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked about a vast range of tactics and narratives that are used to on the one hand delegitimize Kashmiri aspirations for self-determination, on the other hand, to legitimize a settler colonial agenda. Um, and there's parallels, as you mentioned, with, him, with other settler colonial agendas, uh, how those are enacted. You mentioned earlier that it's really important to give space to talk about the aspirations themselves, and you're both part of the Kashmir Solidarity Movement. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about the resistance narratives and uh, what's going on on the ground in terms of resistance. Well, I'm a historian, so I'll start off with the history. So Kashmir in the latter half of the 19th century had a labor movement. It had one of the first labor movements in the world. So a movement against uh, forced labor and the terrible taxation that was imposed on urban artisans. Going into the 20th century, even before the Second World War, Uh, and the queer Indian movement that Indian nationalists mounted, Kashmir also had a thriving sort of democratic protest culture. Uh, And that came to a head in the 40s. Um, Since the 40s, uh, Kashmir civil society has proved extraordinarily resilient at developing tactics that that go outside the uh, formal channels of the democratic process that, as Mirza said, has always been sort of corrupted by intervention by the central state. Um, there was a period of armed insurgency, but it's important to note that the armed insurgency coexisted with the predominance of non-violent protest tactics. So one of the tools in the armory of the Kashmiri people is a hatal, a shutdown, or what we might know in Western Europe and the Anglophone world as a general strike. So these are called in response to atrocities, to human rights violations, to arrests, and these involve mass 
participation by ordinary people. They are called by the resistance leadership, but they rely on people identifying with the political struggle. What we see, what we saw in the early 2000s was a reduction in the levels of violence uh, on both sides, temporarily in Kashmir, and a return to the non-violent methods of mass protest, civil disobedience, and stone throwing, which one might call violent, but when you've got teenagers throwing stones at soldiers, shooting them dead, it's hard to see that as anything but a response to the Indian state's excessive use of force. Well, I mean, that's it's a, it's a reclaiming of their bodies. It's a reclaiming of their their the autonomy on on themselves mm. because they want to assert that see the, the Indian state controls everything in Kashmir. And I mean, I know it's self-destructive and we can uh, we can debate on that, but the people who go out there who pelt stones, they know they're going to die. They know what they're facing. Uh, and despite that they go because the it's a it's an utter rejection of the authority that the government exercises on them and they tell them that we are ready to give everything for this mm. and the th- thing to emphasize is that there's a huge range of tactics and strategies that the Kashmiri people have used to protect their autonomy, to resist moves by the central government. And many, many thousands of people have very consciously sacrificed their, sacrificed their lives for that movement. But what we're seeing in the past Decade or so, new technologies and regimes of domination and control imposed by uh, a very technologically advanced Indian occupation. So the question for the Kashmiri people is how to resist adequately. We still use general strikes. There was one yesterday in response to the MEPs. Now, these are coordinated in conditions of extreme repression. A communications blackout, it's very hard to even communicate with other people outside your neighbourhood. But in in line with that, there is also a, a le- there is a leadership of sorts. But they're under house arrest. Their activists are detained en masse, without trial, tortured. So the question now is, what can the Kashmiri people do when their leadership is in jail or arrested? What forms of civil disobedience can they find that will be recognised and acknowledged by the international community? And that's the second thing I'd like to say, which is that there is a large Kashmiri diaspora, in the UK especially. There are almost a million Kashmiris, many are from the Pakistani administered or occupied side, but that means there is a huge group of people outside Kashmir who are seeking to raise awareness of what's happening there. And what, But what Kashmiris need are allies. They need the solidarity that has been expen- extended rightly to the Palestinian people, for example, to the, Kur- to the Kurds struggling for their aspirations. That's what we need above all. And that's what the Kashmiri people back home are crying out for. But the important thing to say is they have their own agency and they are waging a struggle they've waged for decades. And they've been very isolated and have sacrificed a lot to keep that struggle going. And that's why they need your solidarity. Mirazan Wasim, I want to thank you very much for um, sharing your insight, your intellect, and your knowledge on the situation with us today. Um, I hope all our listeners tuning in have gained some valuable insight into the Kashmir, the Kashmir Solidarity Movement and what's going on in Kashmir right now. Um, I can't thank you enough. And for those listening, if you do have any questions or comments, make sure to tweet, tweet us or um, write to us on Facebook. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Please let us know what you thought about today's discussion or if there's something you'd like to know more about. 
You can send us an email at editor at declarationspod.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at declarationspod. You can also check out our website, declarationspod.com, where every episode has a companion piece with more information about each week's topics. These are written by our show notes writer, Katerina O'Mellon. Our media manager is Ms. Bamalik. Our sound editor is Helen Jennings. Matt Mahmoudi and Max Curtis are our producers. And Jin Min Tan is our executive producer. Tune in next time for more declarations. <laughs>